Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain. Each episode, we bring together leaders across the supply chain space to discuss the role of technology and business model innovation on the future of supply chain. The Future of Supply Chain podcast is presented by Dynamo. Dynamo is a pre-seed and seed stage supply chain investor. To learn more about Dynamo and this show, head over to www.dynamo.vc slash podcasts or subscribe on the platform of your choice. Now let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Future Supply Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar. Joining me today is CEO of where to go Steve Denton. Welcome, Steve. Hey, Santosh. Uh, thank you. It's nice to meet you. appreciate you having me on the, on the program today. So, you know, Steve, it's it not every day you have the CEO of a UPS company on to talk shop and I'd love to start off with giving our listeners the quick elevator pitch on what you and the team are building at where to go. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, look, we're, uh, we just celebrated three years in business. So we've been around three years. I mean, we're, we're a separate company from UPS, right? They're a primary investor in the organization, but we are our own company, right? We have our own board. We have, you know, our employees are our employees, but essentially the problem Santosh, that we solve is, you know, we, we help small to mid-sized businesses get closer geoproximity to their customers so that they can compete in the world of commerce, right? And deliver one to two day via ground. We provide them with an enterprise level supply chain and that involves the data and the technology and a warehouse footprint associated with that. The financial model is a pay-as-you-go model, right? So you only pay for what you use, just like an Uber or an Airbnb, right? You pay for what you use. So if you ship 50, you pay for 50. If you ship 300, you pay for 300. And it's an asset light model, right? So we've got a network of 50 warehouses across the country that we don't own, but we got really strong partnerships with. And the reason we have so many is, you know, you, you want to have good geo proximity to where the, 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 our clients' consumers are, but at the same time, you need different capacity, you need different criteria and capabilities, right? So whether it's cold chain or big and bulky, you know, e-commerce oriented or, or folks that are just really good at at storing, you know, pallets, right? You need a lot of different types of criteria and capabilities across the network that our merchants can take advantage of. So pretty, pretty long elevator pitch. So thanks for giving me a little courtesy on that. (laughs) And and what's your story? What's the Steve Den story? How did you make your way into the world of e-com fulfillment? Yeah, it's great. Great question. I just, for me, it was, it was a culmination of, of everything I'd been working on the previous 25 years. So, you know, I started, I got out of school. I started, I started my career at Pepsi, right? So I got really good big company training and learned how to lead people and, and, and had a great boss there who showed me what good looked like, right? Before I actually, you were using terms like that, right? Because because this is back like 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 I had a boss who used to smoke in the office, right? That's how long ago that was. <laughs> but but the you know I made my way over to transportation. I worked for a company called RPS as a rep, and I worked my way up through the sales channel. And we got eventually bought by FedEx. So I spent a total of nine years there, and I was running the sales team for the Northeast for all of FedEx. And you know I would have been content to stay there, but I I really loved that job because I, I got to see how commerce worked, right? Like whether whether it was a small guy that was, you know, working my way up, you know, guy making margarita mix in Baltimore, Maryland, right? Selling out of his garage or, you know, large manufacturers of suits or Random House was a client of mine back in the day. So I got to see commerce. And then, 
you know, to, to shorten the story up, I, I met a brother and sister who had starting an internet company in 1999 in New York City, which is where I was headquartered. And you know that business today is affiliate marketing, right? Performance-based marketing online, but that didn't exist in 1999. And they invented this, this technology to do it. And the company was called Linkshare. And uh, I stepped out as an entrepreneur and got my taste there, an early stage company. And, and we took that, that business to market and, and sold it to Rakuten. And then I got the bug, right, of digital commerce. And I was there early on. So I spent 20 years building and selling companies to, to larger organizations. So I did ad tech, martech, digital commerce, but I was always helping companies sell their products online. And when the where to go opportunity got presented to me, it just felt like, hey, we have leveled the playing field in sales, right? Like I would submit to you that whether you're a big merchant or a small merchant, enterprise grade or SMB, you can compete online, right? Those channels are available. You have different budgets, right? You have access to different talent but, and with different budgets to spend, but you have access. But that playing field was not level when it came to supply chain. Enterprise still mattered. Enterprise still won because it just had a bigger footprint and better resources. And I just saw it as an opportunity to just finally disrupt that final mile of commerce, which I saw as supply chain, and do it in a really interesting way. So it's really just a culmination of all the things I've been doing for the last 25 years and, 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 and just close that loop and say, you know what, we can actually like level playing field across the entire commerce landscape. And the only thing that was left to tackle, in my opinion, was supply chain. Yep. That's awesome. What a great story and, and, and kind of natural kind of path to, to where to go. And I, I'd be curious, you mentioned the business just celebrated its third birthday recently. What was the origin story behind where to go? Because it has a very unique kind of inception story with the support of UPS. Yeah, I think it's a great story. And I think it's a great story around big companies learning lessons and and acting on that. It's funny, the first iteration I saw of this, I sold a company to eBay years and years ago. And we had this concept there called a concept to code, right? And it's how do you drive innovation at company? UPS had a very similar program where they were looking for innovative ideas, you know, I think about 200, this was back in 2017. So four years ago, right, this, this idea surfaced up and, and this on demand, you know, supply chain and got surfaced up with about, you know, a couple hundred other ideas went through the vetting process. It became one of two that actually got some funding and said, Hey, go, go like do a prototype of that. So uh, they brought in Boston Consulting Digital Ventures and uh, took two UPS leaders that were, you know, up and coming leaders at UPS and took Boston Consulting and sent them off to Santa Monica, California. Like, get them out of the mothership, right? Like, don't let them be bogged down with running the day-to-day business. <laughs> like, go go incubate this. And 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 you know, they went they went to Santa Monica and, and holed up in hotels there and pounded through it and came up with a prototype and and it got funded. And 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 UPS said, you know what? We're going to set it up as a separate entity because, like, when you're a big company that's doing 80, 90, 100 billion dollars a year, you know something that's doing 6 million in his first year, like that's a round. I mean, that's literally a rounding error, yeah. right? And it's going to be someone's hobby and, and it's not going to, it's not going to get the focus. So UPS was really smart and said, Hey, let's set it up as a separate company. Let's bring in outside money, right? So let's have a cap table with outside money. Let's have a separate board. They're going to have a separate 
set of leaders and employees and and let's 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 nurture this so that it can actually like go run and it's not going to be someone's hobby here who's trying to run a 25 billion dollar you know region or something like that so so they set it up right and that's what attracted me to it right it was like hey you could, it's opportunity to be an entrepreneur right you're not a pure entrepreneur in that fashion but got got great backing behind me great access to money great access to other tools and technologies but the freedom to run a business and focus on what we do so I thought it was really unique and forward-looking for UPS to say, let's curate this, but set it up to succeed and not set it up to fail by trying to, you know, innovate something while we're also trying to run a hundred billion dollar business. Yep. Kind of uh, circumventing the innovator's dilemma, if you would, very heads on. So kind of getting into the mindset of where to go uh, customer, right? Like an e-com merchant or a retailer. I'd be curious, like if, if I'm sitting in their shoes thinking about where to go, how do I know if, if where to go is good for my business? What type of attributes would I generally be thinking about in finding kind of customer vendor fit, if you would? Yeah, great question. So I think first and foremost, you know, it doesn't matter if you're B2C or B2B, right? Or you're a mixture of both or what your sales channels look like, whether you're selling through distributors or you're selling direct through e-commerce or through retail stores. I mean, you've got supply chain challenges, right? And so the first thing is, you know, I wouldn't limit myself based on who I sell to and what my channels look like, right? So so that's not really a, a gating factor. In fact, we saw so much of that shift last year with COVID, right? Like, you know, we saw so many merchants that were, you know, pure B2B, I mean, our own business, right? We were like 60% B2B, 40% B2C. We go into COVID, right? Six, six weeks later, right? We're, we're, we're 95 B2C, 5% B2B. And, and that requires a pivot, right? You, you, typically, you got to have a supply chain now that's maybe more focused on small pack, you know, more conveyance systems or pick to light systems versus maybe you were, you were optimized before for pallet builds and LTL shipments, you might have been really optimized for retail compliance before, and now you got to be optimized for you know onesie twosies going to, to residential deliveries. So we saw those pivots happen fast last year, which is why you know one of the reasons we thrived was we had a network to be able to do it. But to answer your question, I think the gating factor is how much inventory are you carrying on hand, right? Because ultimately, like many of our clients get started, they have their own warehouse. Typically, it's connected to, you know, wherever their headquarters is. And then they, you know, they outgrow it, right? They're normally on a coast, right? That's one location. And they've got a large percentage of their customers that are not getting one to two day ground delivery. And they're either upgrading it to air or they're suffering the sales consequences associated with that. So are you carrying enough inventory to go into a second warehouse, right? And what's the cost of carrying that inventory? Because I think that's the gating factor. Right. If, you, if you're selling like 10 units a day and you're only carrying enough inventory for a certain period of time, it's going to be really hard to split that over two warehouses to give you a footprint that's going to that's going to give you the coverage that you want. So I think amount of inventory is is a gating factor. And then how many SKUs? Right. So a lot of times you see a lot of these businesses, they have tens of thousands of SKUs, but, you know, they've only got like very few quantities of those SKUs. So it becomes a challenge as to what you're going to put where. 
So those are the types of things that I would look at. But a lot of these emerging businesses, right, they've got, you know, they don't have a huge SKU count. They carry enough inventory that you can put them in two warehouses. And, and frankly, with our model, right, if we put you in three warehouses in the super regions, right, like the Northeast and that Pennsylvania, Jersey area, we get you somewhere in Kansas City or Dallas, and then we have you somewhere like uh, Reno or uh, Salt Lake City, you're going to get with that footprint, you're, you're going to get, you know, 98.9% two-day ground coverage. So that's your optimal placement. And then as you look to optimize that, and as you carry more inventory, we can put you in more warehouses. So I would tell you inventory carry cost and number of SKUs are going to be your biggest gating factors. So you uh, touched on some interesting points and, you know, the uh, complexity of fulfillment these days, right? So like, having a sense of demand. You mentioned optimization. There's also kind of inventory allocation, forward stocking, back stocking. Like this generally also requires a robust technology competency. How does where to go also serve that need of, of VCOM merchants, retailers out there? Yeah. Well, I think that's our sweet spot, right? Because I think that's where these SMBs and mid-market folks get jammed up, which is... You know, they grow through partnerships and, you know, they don't have access to, you know, big Oracle databases or enterprise level technology to break down all these silos of data. So typically when, when you see that, when you work with these partners, you know, they're, they've got, you know, four data silos at the top of their stack, right? Around their demand gen platforms or e-com platforms, right? A lot of their sales channel platforms. And then they've got their whole supply chain stack, where that's a lot of partners, whether it's their return partner, right? Their, their 3PL, their order management system. It's just, they could have their data sitting in, you know, 15 different places. Now at the enterprise level, right? They just break it down. You know, they can afford the, the Oracle packages and the 15 people that are required to make heads or tails of that, right? But when you're in the SMB mid-market, you know, you're typically an entrepreneur, you've surrounded yourself with three or four other five tool players, executives that are running multi- wearing multiple hats, and and typically business intelligence and and data science that 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 gets whatever budgets left over, and that's a real real challenge, right, for this this mid market merchant. And so I think that's where one of the sweet spots for where to go, right? Because not only are we doing work around you know what your network should look like, like so geo proximity to your customers, but also like what inventory should be there, right? What, what, what inventory should be there, what's missing, what the reorder points should be, and then actually helping them out with demand forecasting, right? Because one of the biggest challenges is like, if you don't get demand forecasting right, or at least in, in a good spot, it's going to be really challenging to do your inventory management, right? And restock points and reorder points and, 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 then, and then what needs to be where. So those are all challenges that our technology helps our merchants with because we provide them with enterprise grade technology around those offerings. And then the last thing is, is, uh, and it comes to play and we should probably talk about it, right. With this whole seller fulfilled prime changes, right. I mean, mm-hmm. with what's going on there, I mean, that's all about page views, right. I mean, the old way was you just needed to have be offered two day. You just needed to offer two day delivery based on sales. Well, now it's two day delivery or one day delivery, right. Based on page views. So, so you've got to be, be thinking digital first here in order to make those the, that 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 work. So that's an area where we've been spending a ton of time, right? Because that's 
that's more than just geo proximity to your customer. It's actually geo proximity to your potential customer. Yep. And, you know, leaning in on that point, like what are the high level questions that merchants should be asking them, right? Because like prospective customer means that you should have some idea of demand and where that originates. That's not always the case, right? There's there's not necessarily that level of kind of sophistication or, or data one could play with. So I'd be curious how merchants need to think about coping. With the, with the new SFP requirements? Yeah. Right. Well, I think the first thing is, right, like, is really understanding, like, what are they? Right? Like, like it, it starts with, do you fit in standard size or do you fit in oversized, right? Because the way Amazon defines that, I mean, it's not typically what you see in transportation companies, right? So, you know, for Amazon, standard size is, you know, one size as long as no size is greater than 18 inches or the box doesn't weigh greater than 20 pounds, that's considered standard size, basically a shoe box, right? But you get over that, whether one size is greater than 18 inches or the box weighs 20 pounds, one ounce, you're in prime oversize at that point. And there's just different requirements for that. And a bunch went into effect on February 1st, and then and then the, the bar gets raised again on June 1st. So I think understanding, one, where you fit, right? Because you've got different parameters around that. And then the second thing is really understanding, you know, the page view dynamic on, on your SKUs and your products and what's going to be required as far as overnight or mm. two days based on those page views is really going to dictate like, okay, where should I be, right? And then it comes back to that inventory question, right? Which is how much inventory am I willing to carry? Like, I'll give you a perfect example. If you're in the oversized category, regional prime is still available to you. If you're in the oversized and you've got a really strong regional play, that's available to you. It's available to you today. It's going to be available to you after June 1st. Like you can optimize that. But, you know, it's hard on a podcast, right, to cover a bunch of numbers. So I'm not going to give you the whole like 50 numbers (laughs) here, right? But but here's, here's, here's the net effect of it. If you're in the standard on page views, right, which is really projected demand, you got to be able to deliver 30% of those in one day or less and 70% of those in two days or less. Page views, not not sales, right? And nationwide. If you're oversized, it's 15%. So half of what the requirement is for standard, 15% has to go oh, one day or less and 60% has to go two days or less and regionals available to you. So it, you've got a lot more options if you're in the oversight. So I think understanding where you fit and then understanding your page views and then designing a network that says, okay, how do I tackle 90% of this in order to be able to handle it? And then just accept like from an economic standpoint, I'm probably going to have to upgrade 10% of those orders to air. So what does that economic model look like for me to make that work? Because you, know, you don't want to give up that prime badge, right? Because the impact on the buy box is huge. And you know, kind of we're talking about seller fulfilled prime and that's clearly a, an Amazon concept. I, I'd be curious, like where do you see Shopify, right? Shopify has clearly made a dent on e-com powering a lot of the merchants out there, you know, very much has this narrative that they are on the side of the merchant and want to be a partner, a, a, a good partner to the e-com merchant. 
kind of how does that play out here as we think about enablement, fulfillment, delivery, customer experience? Yeah, it's great. And certainly Shopify has been like just killing it, right? So, but that fulfillment's hard. So to just to bridge the gap between say SFP, right? And, and Shopify, or even expand it to other marketplaces, right? The way we thought about it and the way we designed our network to meet the requirements for SFP is we just said, look, that expectation from consumers is just going to get elevated, right? I mean, we all have the same expectation now, right? We want two-day shipping, we want access to the world's inventory, and we want price transparency. And we expect it to be a really personalized experience for us, right? And I don't think we limit those expectations to Amazon, right? We expect that as, as a connected consumer today. So when we thought about it and designed it was, hey, if we can meet the needs for that, it'll actually help our merchants succeed in the other places where they sell, whether it's direct, right, through their Shopify cart or, you know, what they're doing maybe on a Wayfair or, or an eBay or other marketplaces where they may be selling. So we designed it to say, look, if, if we can meet those needs, you know, and, and meet those consumer demands, it's going to help you in your other channels. And that includes Shopify. So when I think about Shopify as an e-commerce platform, clearly, right? I mean, I think that shop pay, that shop pay button, the functionality on that and the conversion rates on that are just insane. It's it's great platform. It's emerging. We're actually in their app ecosystem. So if, if a merchant wanted to understand like what a where to go network would work, look like for them, all they have to do is open up the where to go app in that ecosystem. It downloads your sales history and says, hey, here's what your shipping looked like for the last year based on these sales. Here's what good could look like for you if you wanted to meet two-day delivery for this is what your footprint should look like. So obviously growing and it's certainly in that sweet, you know, that sweet 5 million to say $150 million a year of, of sales merchant and, and growing fast. And certainly they're investing a ton in, in fulfillment. There's just a lot of ground to cover there. So, but yeah, we do a lot of work with them and, and they're crushing it. So probably not a great answer to your question. I just... <laughs> You know, they're, they're, I, I don't look at it like I don't look at our stuff and say, hey, we compete with Amazon or we compete with Shopify. I just look at what we do and say, hey, we help our merchants sell more on Amazon, sell more through the Shopify cart, sell more through eBay because they've got a supply chain that meets or exceeds the demands of today's connected consumer. So you essentially can plug into the ecosystem of a merchant's choice and enable them accordingly on the back end. And I guess kind of transitioning that, what is your thinking on e-com, the state of e-com as we look forward for the next 12 months? Because we saw like a a decade's worth of growth, I think is the line in in a matter of nine months (laughs) due to COVID. Yeah. So five trends I'll talk to you about real quick, right? Five trends that I'm paying attention to that are impacting a lot, right? The first one is this growth of on-demand delivery. We saw that, you know, during the pandemic, right? So on-demand delivery, you know, you, you, you've just seen, and, and what you see there is like retailers pivoting, right? Or piloting ship from store, right? So if you look at say, you know, Walmart, 2,500 of their stores last year were also serving as fulfillment centers, right? Kohl's, 135, Macy's, 800, right? So, so you know, as traditional retail systems have been uh, upended by the pandemic, you know, the players are moving their fulfillment systems closer to customers and they're piloting more and more in-store fulfillment. 
So, you know, that on-demand delivery is, is, is absolutely here to stay. We've seen residential delivery surging to historic levels. So that just tests every carrier, every retailer's ability to deliver on time. So, so that's a big trend. That leads you to these dark stores, right? So a, a, lot of, a lot of dark stores. So like I was looking like Levi's, right? One third of their online demand in the second quarter last year was fulfilled by closed store locations. Mm. Right. So, you know, you've got, you know, Whole Foods converted six of its locations in LA and New York into dark stores. So, so, you know, and that supports, you know, online grocery sales, right? I mean, online yep. grocery sales grew so fast, right? So that's the most popular sector. So paying and, attention to that. And go and, ahead. And, and and I think like especially with uh grocery, right? It 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 saw the greatest growth. It's also I think the largest kind of pocket of, of retail and all data from consumers indicate that consumers continue to have an expectation that they will buy such essentials online because they've been able to see the uh, convenience of it. Yeah. The consumers have said, Hey, I'm, I'm willing to buy, I'll, I'll buy groceries, right. I'll buy personal products, right. I'm already streaming my entertainment and that's going to continue. And then, and then this kicked the door down in, in some other categories. Uh, and we saw that, you know, we just saw a ton of CPG go through our network last year. So dark stores support that. And then that moves you to these micro fulfillment centers, right? So you just see more and more of these micro fulfillment centers where, you know, you can get fulfillment as fast as 30 minutes. That has a ton of implications on final mile. So, you know, one of the interesting things, like when we talk to, you know, consumers are planning to shop when you look at the studies, right? Consumers are planning to shop more online for entertainment, household essentials, food, and personal care products, right? And, and 68% of consumers expect to buy from a local merchant in the next 12 months. So it really starts having you think a lot about final mile. And then I think, you know, the last two things I'll cover there that, that we pay a lot of attention to is like, look, SMBs are the new entrance into the e-commerce market. Right, fifty-eight percent of all businesses in the SMB launched a new online delivery channel during the pandemic, as consumers moved to shop online. And when you look at the growth, right? So if you look at, so you know, last year, what non-store retail grew twenty-one percent. This year, it's projected to grow at fourteen percent, while total retail is going to grow about eleven percent, and in-store retail will grow about ten, right? Because that was down two percent last year. But it's the SMBs. That 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 are new entrants into this market, and and you know they saw just in in the fourth quarter, right? They saw a hundred and four percent increase in their sales over the holiday season compared to like eighty four percent in nineteen. And the last piece about that around the SMBs is just mobile, right? Like yeah. just 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 mobile for them, right? They're seeing, you know, these small retailers are seeing up to a thirty percent higher mobile conversion rate. As these larger, you know, versus larger retailers, as more SMBs turn online, and and I was looking at some statistics: seventy three percent, right, of all e commerce sales in twenty twenty one are going to come from a mobile device. Mm-hmm. So the SMBs got to be mindful of that. So so those are some of the trends, right, that we saw emerge or bubble up last year, and we've seen that continue in Q one, and certainly it drives how we think about fulfillment. So I want to touch on this point of B to E that you bring up. And I'd I'd love to kind of have you expand on that for our listeners and explain why that's important, because this all kind of goes together here, right, with everything we've discussed so far. Yeah, and I don't know that I coined it, right, but but I I can't take ownership of it, but I also can't tell you where I heard it, 
right? So, so I just want to be clear on that. But, but ultimately, right, when we, when we all saw the massive shift start taking place last year in March and April, you know, so many folks were just getting hung up on, hey, I'm B2B or I'm B2C, and now I'm trying to pivot. And it just becomes like, hey, look, if you're in business today, you're, you, the consumers, I don't know, how, how do you shop, right? Like I, I shop online just for business stuff, just like I shop for personal stuff, right? I go to, I go to search engines, you know, I, I look at product reviews, Right. I, 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 I look at price sites. I even would go to a coupon site and see if I can get a good deal. Right. And I, I, you know, I don't know how much different than a lot of folks that are running, running businesses or how they shop. Right. And I don't think of myself as B2B or B2B. I just, I just a consumer, right. I'm shopping. Right. And, and, and I don't call it e-commerce. I call it commerce. So when I think about B2E, it's like, look, if you're in business today, you're, you're do business with everyone. Right, because your customers aren't putting themselves in these categories, right? That's what we did as marketers, right? That was that was what marketers did, right? We put you in categories, and in today's world, where where your customer, you need to meet your customer where they need to be met, right? <laughs> Versus like let's try to meet them where we want to meet them. That like you're in business with everyone, and you need to have a supply chain and a commerce landscape that actually allows you to do business with everyone. Because your customers aren't categorizing themselves and saying, hey, this is e-commerce. This is mobile commerce. No, it's just called commerce. It's commerce. And, 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 and I don't classify myself as a business or a person. I'm just, I'm buying. So it's not much more complex than that. Yeah, no. Me, and right? so, <laughs> I, I think that's like totally spot on. And I, I, I procure for Dynamo in the exact same way one procures for themselves. Paper towels, snacks, office essentials. It, it, it's all kind of converged in behaviors and, and, and habits. And it's kind of, I think, part of that whole consumerization trend, right? I think seven, eight years ago, we, we were talking about the consumerization of enterprise software. And well, now you're kind of seeing it seep into some of the less sexy topics around operations, whether that's enterprise or, or, or SMB. But Steve, kind of before- It's, it's just like, G, it's, it's, it's like G2 crowd, right? I mean, G2 crowd, product review. I mean, it's just like, it, it's not a lot different. I'm not saying they're the same, but it's, it's not much different than how you're going to do product reviews on Amazon, right? I mean, it's just, I need a large audience that's had experience with this product, but it's the same behavior. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So Steve, kind of as we wrap up here, I'd, I'd be curious, like what do you think as you survey the next three to five years, let's say medium term, is going to be the next major innovation to hit the warehousing and fulfillment landscape? Well, I mean, certainly look, you've, you've got, I mean, like warehouse, three PLs and warehouses, right? Became the popular kids in high school in the last year, right? Like, like. Like all of a sudden, right? Like everybody wants to sign their yearbook to use an analogy, right? And that might not have been like the case a couple of years ago, right? There was plenty of warehouse space, right? You, 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 you had to pick that. And now, you know, supply is tight. Good supply is tight, right? Because to, to operate now, you know, especially with, every, with, with more and more move into residential delivery, you know, the ability to, to have automation is critical. You just can't get away with, you know, big old empty building that has a lot of skids in it, right? And you just move an LTL. 
or pallet loads. I mean, that business still exists, right? And it's always going to be there. But but as more and more, you know, moves into this dynamic, you know, commerce landscape, then then you know, you see it with automation and robotics, right? And and you've seen that with the valuations of some of these companies recently. So that's really critical because you know, to be able to optimize that space and then deal with the, sh- the shrinking labor pool, right? So, so because especially from a seasonality standpoint, as, 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 as things get really compressed around the fourth quarter, you're just not, you know, the answer is not going to be, let's just hire a bunch of temps, right? That, that's not going to continue, that, that, that market is not going to continually be available for you and it's going to continually to be more expensive. So, you know, what these warehouses and, and what some of these companies are doing around automation and robotics and conveyance systems. And I, mean, I was looking at one the other day that is, it's, 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 it's stacking it. It's amazing. It'd be hard to describe. It's one of those visual things, uh, but, but it's amazing to see what's going on there. And it's just less of a reliance on just labor, right? Cause that can't be the solution and optimizing the real estate and getting the maximum productivity out of these warehouses. So that, that trend will, that, that'll be the big trend is how do you optimize the supply? Because the demand's going to be there, right? And the, and the people that can, the, the demand's going to be there. Like that's not, we're not going backwards. So how do you optimize the supply? And how do you optimize supply using data, technology, and automation, not just in the warehouses, but, but also in breaking down some of those data silos to help, to help these merchants actually, you know, not just, not, it's not going to be as simple as let's have you within 400 miles of your customers, right? It's like, how do, how do we have the right inventory in the right places for who your customers are going to be six months from now? And what are they going to buy? Well, with that, Steve, I think we've covered a, a lot of ground. Really appreciate you taking the time to break down where to go and, and equally kind of how merchants should be thinking about some of the upcoming changes to the fulfillment landscape. And, and with that, we look forward to seeing where you and the team take where to go as we see a increased pattern around e-com consumption. Very good. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time and and appreciate the questions. Have a great day. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.